This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. This week, we explore the cultural art of the Gullah, Seminole, and Black Seminoles, or Seminole Maroons. Our guest is artist Johnny Montgomery, a descendant of Gullahs who were forcibly removed from West Africa and shipped in bondage to America. Johnny is a proud American with no hyphens, but he is also quite proud of the Gullah people he is descended from, growing up eating healthy portions of eel, crab, and grits. He said eating alligator and raccoon was not out of the norm. A retired army paratrooper with time in Vietnam's jungle, Johnny is a veteran of the defense of Saigon during the Tet Offensive of 1968. He wore jump boots for three decades of military service that took him around the world. And then, upon retirement, he exchanged that life for a more leisurely one with a brush and easel of a painter. His artwork is a rich and deeply personal exploration of the Seminole and Black Seminole. Johnny uses his practical knowledge and his heritage to paint history onto his canvases. Johnny Montgomery's art is important. Single-handedly, he has given us a vision of what Seminole of many different hues may have looked like during the Seminole Wars period. He paints robust characters with vibrant colors. Most importantly, he does this from the perspective of a black man. His Seminole are not depicted stereotypically and erroneously as savages or slaves. Instead, Johnny presents them as a real people who were strong, fierce, brave, and resilient. A major presentation is his Battle of Okeechobee, which hangs at the Seminole Nation Museum in Weewaka, Oklahoma. He's also presented at the annual Seminole Negro Indian Scout Association's gathering in Brackettville, Texas. Johnny Montgomery, welcome to the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be a part of this podcast. Johnny, you can paint any number of subjects. So why do you paint Seminole? Black Seminole, and Seminole Maroons? You know, I'm glad you asked that question because I don't feel that there's enough people of my culture or nationality that get involved in our history. And to me, it doesn't matter as far as they go because to me, it's personal. I was raised up as a girl. I was born in Timmonsville, South Carolina. I'm a little further out. Okay, my grandmother, my father... They were born in the Charleston area. They were raised in the Charleston area along the coast. My, my grandmother and her mother, my great-grandmother, they were born deep into the Gullah Corridor near uh, McClellanville, South Carolina. But as far as my painting, well, I was raised in Charleston as well. So when I retired from the military, I got deeply involved in painting. So I was painting animals, farm animals and stuff like that. I was, I was in Germany in the military. I was painting the uh, canine culture, working dogs. But as far as me being a Gullah descendant, I thought it was important for me to get involved. Took a strong interest in what I was doing as far as the artwork because when I was in high school, I never heard anything about the Gullah being uh, affiliated with the Seminoles. So I started reading a little bit at a time and then I got more involved and I started wondering why isn't more of this information out there. So I started doing my research. I wanted to combine the Gullah culture that encompasses the Gullah culture as far as the wetland. They did a lot of hunting. And uh, I didn't see a lot of these paintings out there. So I wanted to incorporate that with, with what I know and get more involved in the culture itself. 
meaning their life in the wetlands where they got their food because I was raised on Gullah food. But I never saw any paintings of people hunting alligators. I did my research, and we were raised partly on alligator meat and wild meat. I wanted to tie that together with what I read about the Seminole, because I know a lot of gullahs, they said, were escaped slaves. And this is what my art reflects. I just try to come up with different stories within my paintings. Each painting tells a different story from the time the gullahs escaped the plantations in the South, went to Florida, joined the Creeks and the Maroons. They were all tied in together. Then I had to start branching out, and now I'm doing some artwork in uh, Oklahoma, Oklahoma Five Civilized Tribe, the uh, freedmen they call them. There's not very much on them. You'll see a lot of work on the Indians themselves, but I think somewhere along the line, the freedmen, in my opinion, have lost some of their interest in being kicked out of the tribes in the past, but a lot of them are related by blood. As far as the gun is concerned, that's an ongoing project for me. I just love putting my paintings together and see how they look because one day kids are going to grow up and they're going to ask their grandparents, well, who's that picture? What's that about? So the history, I'm a history person and I love tying all the history in together. I wanted to come up with different aspects of Gullah culture itself. Our dancers in Gullah culture, they call the shout, ring shout. That's similar to the stomp dancers that the Seminoles do. These people have very similar culture. When the slaves went down to Florida, they took the knowledge of rice growing. They could speak English. The other thing is, I believe, a lot of the Seminoles and blacks that escaped down there to Florida, some of my men are married. Quite a few of them intermarried. Unless I'm proven wrong, one of the advantages is that the Gullahs are West African descendants as well. It's a big malaria uh, issue over there. A lot of them died from malaria, but the ones that survived, I believe they passed those genes on to whoever they came in contact with. Maybe it's a possibility that some of the Seminoles that intermarried have that resistance to malaria through those means. There's a lot of work I want to do related to the Seminoles and the Blacks. All aspects of wildlife hunting, basically food gathering, food day, some of the other traditions. Many of the uh, blacks became warriors in the Seminole tribe. We all know that. That's what my interest in as far as the art goes. I see the food culture, the food, they eat the same types of food, and the basket weaving. That's one of the big ones because Gullahs have the only place in the United States around Charleston, all along the Gullah Corridor, that's the only place that craft of basket weaving is still going on. It's still present where we can visually see it, as well as some of the herbs. The Gullahs are very knowledgeable in herbs, and yeah, and some of the Seminoles are the same way. So yeah, they're tied in that way. They're similar in that respect. When and what did you draw in your early years? I was pretty proficient. I won a few ribbons in elementary school, more watercolors then. As an artist... What painters have been an inspiration to you? I watched a lot of the paintings by Frederick Remington, George Catlin, but I never could figure out why George Catlin, even though he was an artist during the time that the Seminoles were active in that era, and he was doing paintings down there, he didn't paint any of the black Seminoles that I know of. I haven't seen any of them. So that was always a question, but he's still one of my favorite artists, the way he captured the Native American I'm familiar with Mr. Guy Labrie, too. Oh, bless him. I had a chance to speak with him before he passed away years ago. One of my other idols as far as artists, Mr. Jackson Walker, 
He's definitely one of my inspirations. I like his art style. Wonderful artist, great artist. It's a combination of all the it's the way his colors blend in so natural. At the same time, they're bright. The color scheme is related. Even though the picture is bright, it jumps out at you, but it looks so realistic. And then his subject, he's versatile. All subjects in that area, he can paint almost any subject. His subjects, and this is one of the things that I'm going to do too eventually. One reason I don't do as much of some art as I do the other, as I do the colors, because I've seen a lot of color artwork in the normal life and people going to church and women weaving the baskets, but I wanted to do something different, which I think that struck a point there, and that is I wanted to put people doing more. They had some fishing and all that, but I believe I have the first one where they actually have a very unique picture of the gullers hunting the alligators and catching alligators. Johnny, what are some subjects you want to paint in the future? In the future, probably next year sometime, I'm going to be doing some stuff on uh, the Laxahatchee Battlefield. For me, this process is so long and drawn out. I try to be real accurate when I do a painting. So I have to do some more studying on the Laxahatchee Battlefield, and that's the one I'm working on. I want it to be different than anybody else stuff. You know what I'm saying? Even though there's some good stuff out there, I haven't seen anything on Laxahatchee artwork, and I know there is. I think Mr. Walker did something, but I'm going to do my version of that, something different based on what I read. Also, the Negro Fort, I want to do something on that. And I know Mr. Walker has a beautiful piece of artwork on that. But I want to do something also on the cracker culture down there. The, uh, the farmers back in the days with the old feral cows, called cracker cows, given the name by them herding the cattle with the whip and all that stuff. The cows are very unique because they were descendants of the old Spanish cows that were left over here. They lived in the wild. So I want to do a unique scene about that, too. I'm working on a painting now. I may be finished by the time I have this exhibit in January down there. It has a couple of feral cows in it with the maroons. That's one of the scenery. I don't know how far along we get. I'm going to try to finish it. If not, I'll just have to work on them. But I'll be doing a lot more on the maroons, the, the culture of the uh, cracker farmers, the, the cowers out there. Johnny, when did you get exposed to the Florida Seminole? My first trip down to Florida was back in 1995. So I've been at it a long, long time. So I've been down there, and I've been to a few of the reenactments. I've been to Oklahoma about three or four times. I had a sit-down with who is now Chief Johnson, but back then he wasn't chief about two times. So I've been all up in that area doing my research on foot. <laughs> What impact has your service in the Vietnam War had on your painting? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. It ties in. I'll tell you what kind of impact it had on me. It was an army paratrooper. I had malaria in Vietnam. I got flashback. I said, well, the malaria was a big problem down in Florida when Blackson and Seminole was, was fighting. I survived it. The other thing is the jungle warfare. So I spent a year in jungle operations over there with the 101st Airborne Division. They said that they used the Seminole Wars as an example to teach West Point cadets about the Vietnam War, different situations, that kind of thing. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they've taken some down to Florida as a class to explain the terrain, environment, that kind of stuff. What got me to get really more involved is when I came down there back in the 95, 96, they were using ox carts, and they had real oxen. For one year, at the annual Dade Battle reenactment at the Historic State Park in Bushnell, 
the reenactors secured two oxen to pull the cannon. That was the first and only time they've been used. On the actual march, the oxen failed about four miles out from Fort Brook, where they departed from. So they used horses instead, and the oxen pulled the wagon. All the animals perished in the battle, along with most of the soldiers. They stopped that later on. When I went down there one of the other times, I said, well, why do you lock cost? They told me because it was too hard for them to train the animal, and I guess when the animal was in a noise condition. By the time they take the train the animals, and by the time they take a whole another year to have another reenactment, they figures it was a waste of time, see? I understand you had a humorous exchange with the late John Griffin and his nephew Matt, who are black Seminoles and participate in the different reenactments. I met them way before he got really involved. When I went down there on a reenactment visit, they said, well, thanks for coming down. I said, what do you mean? And I said, I'm a dollar. I said, he's about my people too. I didn't want to make it look like I was trying to embarrass him. <laughs> I've been to Florida a few times. I don't remember the uh, Tosca Key Museum for over 15 years now. I got three paintings out there. One with the blacks in the village with a rifle being protected by the Seminoles. The other one is alligator being butchered on the table. And the other one is some Seminoles fighting in the swamp. I thought the Key Museum, they sent out a lot of wonderful things every three months. The Q Book is a little magazine, but it's packed with information. They have all kinds of information about, they had one page on the bandolier, the story about the bandolier. And they had a story about Polly Parker. A lot of these things I didn't know until I started reading them. And Polly Parker, she has black descendants. They had one point, they had that reunion down there. Yeah, she has black descendants. So quite a few Seminoles have black descendants. I even remember when they opened up Fort Pierce, Back around 1995, 96, somewhere around that area. And they only had like 50 descendants there. And those are predominantly black descendants. But they have Seminole ancestry, but they're mostly predominantly black ancestors of the Seminoles. I need to get down there one day <laughs> just to go around and talk to some of the folks. It stretches out. goes from the Gullah, runaway slaves, maroons into Oklahoma, then into Mexico when the Texas Rangers tried to catch that group that was trying to get into Mexico because they were trying to put them back on the plantation in Oklahoma. They were sending bomb hunters after them. I met some of the people uh, from Mexico, a lot of them, Muscogos they call them. In fact, one of the young ladies is going to be down there in Florida doing the reunion that starts on the 11th. She's a Muscogos descendant. She still goes over there. I'm working on that lineage from the Gullahs, the Maroons, Seminoles, Oklahoma and New Mexico. But Oklahoma right now is having the biggest problem because of the disagreement with the freemen. Supposedly it's based on the 1866 treaty. But I think the Seminoles are trying to work with them a little bit better, but the Creeks are pretty resistant. Maybe with the Creek Wars too, from Burnt Corn Creek where they tried to ambush them and it failed, and then the Red Sticks retaliated and uh, killed almost 500 white stick warriors. They weren't traditional. The red sticks came to be traditional. The white sticks were the ones that were friendly with the Europeans, they say, put it like that. A lot of the ones at Fort Mills were mixed. They call them Matisse in French. Yeah, not Matisse. The French word is Matisse because they got them in Canada, too, when they had the Indian Wars, the First Nation Wars in Canada. The Matisse was the one that was friendly with the Creeks. The whites that were mixing with the Creeks, they were the ones that were called the Matisse around Mobile area. They live around that area. They occupied the fort. They got along well, but when the uh, traditional Creeks, which was the Red Sticks, found out that they had too much influence down there, 
Then they went to war because they were going to go to Florida, where they did go to Florida and get supplies from the Spanish. And on the way back, that's when they got ambushed at Burnt Corn Creek. It wasn't a full-out victory for the militia, the white militia, and they failed. So the Creeks had a chance to regroup and back Fort Mills, but they got wiped out of Horseshoe Bend with Andrew Jackson. The few that was left and scattered out, as well as some Choctaws and a few uh, dispersed tribe members, they one went down to Florida and, and went further into Florida and became part of the Seminole. Supposedly, uh, Abraham, the black Seminole, he was one of the ones that escaped from the Negro Fort, they say. How important were those college courses in your training as an artist? I only went to a two-year college. I went to Fayetteville Tech. It was a very good college. It's a two-year technical school. How that helped me, really, as far as art, I knew how to paint. I looked at something and painted. But they taught me all the fundamentals, like the one-third rule, balancing objects when you're using objects, colors, color balance, whether you got too many dark colors on the right, it makes the left unbalanced. If the colors are not even out with maybe an object or something in it, and foreshortening, how you view an object right in front of you, whether it's a person putting his hand out, and then you look at the hand in the foreground, then the further back you get, it's a vanishing point. How the objects are placed in a painting, I learned all of that, man. A lot of a lot of stuff like that. You can't put two little people right next to them. It just won't look right. In fact, I'm working on one now that's going to be similar to that. I'm doing the chief. He was a black chief. Well, he was half and half. Silas Jefferson, he was a black chief that had two terms in the Creek tribe. Trees the same way. Can't have a, a picture. You put a big tree right next to a guy. That kind of stuff, the perspective of the measurements and distance. You just got to know what you're doing when you're painting. <laughs> and school give you school plus the books. They give you all the tools that you need, and then you can go from there. So, yeah, college was uh, way after Vietnam. I spent Vietnam 1967, 68. I was in Vietnam during the test. And then I spent a year at Fort Benning, Georgia, a year in Korea after that. And then just about all my other time was in 82nd, except for a couple of tours in Germany. I went to Fairwood Tech around... It was in the 90s. In fact, it was around 95 because when I went back to school and that show came on, that had my, the video came on Discovery Channel at first, I believe, that had my pieces of art in it. I guess the class couldn't believe it because that painting had won. Uh, it was two awards won out of 165 pictures, and that one was called Sanctuary. And I went back to school. They could hardly believe that you had pictures on TV. What were some early images for the paintings that you made? I painted Chief Billy Bullegs, painted him. He was in the swamp with, a, with another guy down, kneeling down beside him, another warrior. And he had on a striped shirt. He was chief in the Third Seminole War, 1855-1858. I read up on why he went to war. Surveys were destroying his crops. And popular culture believed that, and as far as articles believed that, they did it to provoke him. <laughs> the other ones are... There were so many battles that I don't know why the movies hadn't covered it. I'm going to try to put as much stuff out there that includes the Gullahs, the Maroons, and the Seminoles. It relates to everybody because you have white officers, so they're going to be in the paintings too. So much hidden from society as far as movies. That's me. I just want to paint the realistic stuff. I want to do it because a lot of these guys died down there fighting for their life. You know what I'm saying? And they wanted to be free. And Andrew Jackson said, well... No, you can't be free. We're going to put you back into slavery. They did get a chance to physically let their feelings be known to the American government. 
They burned down almost 20 sugar plantations during the Second Seminole War in Georgia and Florida. And a lot of them were led by a wildcat, Seminole, Osceola. People still call him a chief. He was a great guy, but he wasn't a chief. That's why I do these paintings, because these paintings are not going to have all the light faces. You're going to have a dark-skinned maroon, the dark-skinned colors, and Seminole is going to have their complexion. Well, some of them range from dark to light. Some of them were mixed. And one little kid said, Mommy, Mommy, they don't have any black Indians. And she couldn't explain it, I guess. So that's inspiration for my thing. I'm not a guy that sit around and listen to rap music all day. That's not me. I'm more of a cultural person. I've already seen some of the interests from people that exposed my art. I've seen interests here and Oklahoma. Depending on each individual maroon or black Seminole, they became part of the tribe. Even if some of them didn't intermarry, they dressed the same as the warriors did. The Gullah came from a culture that believed in something close to, to, I would say, voodoo, a medicine man. The Seminoles, they have a medicine man. The Gullahs, they have an herb doctor. And if you want to go a little further than that, you got a guy that practices voodoo. One of the guys, well known for that, but a, a guy was named Mr. Buzzard back in the uh, early 1900s, middle 1900s. Dr. Buzzard out of Buford. People in South Carolina believe in putting roots on a person. You heard of that before, right? When I do a Gullah or Maroon warrior, Seminoles might have certain things they take in the battle with them. But what I do is I put a little medicine pouch on one of my paintings. I believe I have a little medicine pouch on, on one of the guys that tied around the neck as a the good luck trinket. And that's what they believe in. They believe in that stuff. If you study a black Seminole picture and you look at it in much detail, then in my paintings, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see something that indicate something other than he's just dressed as a Seminole warrior or a maroon warrior. That little trinket he had around his neck, a little bag of what he think is power, he probably picked up some of this from his roots and as well what the Seminoles tell them that they believe in. Because the Seminoles believe in, also the men, they believe in uh, fighting to the death. Because their thing is if they live up to a certain age, they believe they already lived their full life. You heard of that before? And the Gullahs, a lot of them were comfortable wearing machetes because that's what they used on the sugar plantations. And when they went to war, that's what a lot of them wore. Now, I've yet to do a scenery on uh, involving the bloodhounds they used to use to track them down with. So they're like Cuban-type bloodhounds. I know what they look like with the ears cropped and all that. So I'll be working on that later on down the road. Right now, I've got people that want me to do certain scenes. They want me to do an exhibit out in California and Oklahoma, and I got to get a couple of different pictures ready for that that relate. The one in California is supposed to be about the Gullahs, too, and the Seminoles. The one in Oklahoma is about the freedmen, some of the, uh, the black descendants in the Creek tribe, the interracial culture. My main way of picking is because the lack of information out there as far as a picture or a painting depicting that particular event or lifestyle. You can flip through. The Internet has a lot of good information. But they don't have specific information about the maroons in the battlefield. They'll have, like, write-ups about it, but they don't have any pictures of it. They might have some. I've seen some of uh, South America, the Dismal Swamp and all that, but no detailed picture. But I come up with it because right now some people have said that they haven't seen anything on the maroons. Since they mentioned that, I wanted to shift a little bit from doing the Gullah-type stuff to doing the maroons. Because when I was in Oklahoma... A few different people asked me about that. See, I had an exhibit in Texas. Quite a few people asked me about the uh, maroons. 
Am I going to do something on the Maroons? So I said, yeah, you know, sure. That's why I'm putting more emphasis on the Maroons right now. Some people didn't call them Black Seminoles. They call them Maroons. But I believe it was a combination of both. With the Spanish, they were living free as kind of like mercenaries, but some books refer to them as vassals. And But some were living free. Some would classify as Maroons living in the wild that weren't affiliated with the Seminoles. And a lot of them that were affiliated with the Seminoles, they directly went down to join the tribe when they escaped, but they set up in their different villages. Then they were closely related to the Seminoles, and they live in different areas than some of the other Maroons. And then you had some Maroons that had contact with the Seminoles who they became friends. Somewhere in there, for as many battles that they had, it has to depend on where the battles were that the Maroons joined in with the Seminoles. That's the only logical thing I can see. But my subjects, I want to do the Negro Ford. I want to do a couple other ones. But I also read the battles now. If I read a battle, and I think I can do a, a picture like, like I did with Lake Okeechobee when I actually went down there and did a recon. If you're doing a picture like that, you have to read good. If you don't have the chance to go down there, you need to make sure you do good research because uh, Lake Okeechobee was behind them, and Taylor Creek was in front. They was battling across that water there at Taylor Creek. And it says some of them turned around and some of the allies took off and running. And some of the militia, too, some of the volunteers initially. Some of the research would have already been done when I went down to Florida. Like when I went to talk to Chief Johnson, I asked about what color feathers they wore at the time. And I knew what the haircuts were like. Hairs cropped on the side, that, that one piece hanging down on, in front of the ear, that kind of stuff. Then you had a mix. So, you know, you had someone wearing... The position, I also have to consider position, how I may have to pull a picture out of a book or something to get a silhouette, in other words, the form of a person. But when I get that form, I put my colors, I put the face on it. I don't use the same person. I don't use the same face. I only want that form to get the proportion of the arm and all that stuff, the position of it, of how he's angled. Say, if he's coming down with a hatchet on machete, get his angle. Some things I just pull out of my memory. I don't use a book for everything I do. I have enough experience to know what a lot of these things look like, like palm trees, palmetto, the ferns and all that stuff. The logs, natural stuff. I know how that looks like. I don't need no picture for that. The barks on the trees, the pine trees and oak trees or whatever. But then I start putting my own colors in, colors that's going to relate. I'm going to bring the picture out. I knew what they were. But the hardest one to paint is those calico shirts with all those different designs in them. And they wore calicos, they wore striped shirts. For me, striped stripes is the easiest. You can use a plain cloth. You can use a plain shirt if you want to, but those calicos, they take a while to do. It's just a lot of from memories. I don't go to the book every time I got to, you know. I just put a couple of objects in there. As far as the person, if I'm painting a battle scene, I have to make sure what the placement of each fighting scene is going to be. Or each person, one man fighting the other. How his body is positioned, that kind of stuff. How is his firing position look when he stand up shooting or he kneeling, kneeling down shooting? So that's it. If I want to put a bandana on him or a turban, I do that out of memory. Put the clothes out of memory, the bandolier out of memory. And I've learned to know what type of bandolier. I won't put a Chippewa bandolier on a Seminole. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> that's where the research kick in. But the research I've already done, I've already done the research. Only research I have to do is that somebody say, well, did you hear about the Battle of uh, Rosewood, Florida, with the Seminoles? That's, so I said, well, I'll check it out. I'll go read about the battle and see who was involved. 
and try to get as accurate as possible. But I'll have to know what type of terrain it was. I have to know what type of trees were in that area where it was more predominantly pine or predominantly cypress, that kind of stuff. What are some venues where you've displayed your paintings? First, how I came about is I gave the chief one of my paintings because of the information that he gave me with my research. So I donated a, one of my press to him, Lake Okeechobee. He sent me a card. That was it. Sometime after that, one of the persons that worked in the museum, when I went there, they wanted to see me because I had a picture up there. I had one in the Seminole Nation Museum, too. The one that I had on Discovery Channel. That's the one called Sanctuary. They had a bust of Billy Bullegs from chest up. They had it sitting on display. Right behind it, they had a picture of uh, my print, Sanctuary, in there. When I went over there to direct, she wanted to know if I had any more paintings. And I told her, I sat and I explained to her what, what it was and what I knew about the Seminoles. But she said, we can display some of your work if you want. I see, I do that for Black History Month. That's how it came about. I put it there, and I donated also one uh, to the Museum of John Horse. It was the original, but that was my interpretation of John Horse. I told him, well, y'all don't have anything here on John Horse. So I'm surprised because... He was the one that discovered the town. So why do you not have anything on John Horse? I had the alligator picture on there. I had the John Horse painting. I had uh, the Lake Okeechobee battle. And there was a couple other ones. Some of them were permanent. They have some of them for sale. They don't have many prints for sale. Maybe uh, one or two of John Horse. Because I didn't have a whole lot of them made at the time. I donated like maybe four or five of them to them. And then all together, I think it's around about five or six pieces I left down there for sale of different ones. I just wanted to see how they do so that's what the Seminole Nation and the Seminole Nation Museum in Oklahoma. I understand you also displayed some in Brackettville, Texas. It was wonderful. It was wonderful in Brackettville. I gave, I had a nice exhibit that was bigger than Oklahoma. It was more people there than Oklahoma. Oklahoma was an exhibit, but it was more like a display. In Brackettville, I actually was there. I got to meet a lot of descendants from all over the states that came there for the Seminole Indian Negro Scouts reunion. They were connected to people out of Florida, South Carolina. They were from all over. They were descendants or family descendants. Some people even came from Spain. That was big. I gave a briefing on each of the paintings that I had up there on the wall. I told them why that I did the exhibit. A lot of people invited me to come there. That was supposed to happen close to three or four years before I went there. I never could get financially situated, and I never had the amount of paintings that I wanted to have. I gave them a speech after I walked them through and talked them through each of the paintings. They purchased some prints. It was a good show. You've painted Abraham. What were you aiming for? That one's on display in Texas at some culture center right now. I did Abraham because there's no other painting out there to show Abraham and his battle dress in a Florida environment. So that's why I did Abraham. I'm not crazy about that one. I'm getting ready to do another one on him that's going to be, I don't know, it could take a couple of months to do it, but I'm going to do another one. It's going to be good. I think it's a mixed bag. But the thing is, bigger pictures take bigger time. Sometimes I don't see the progress fast enough. Pictures with less people in it, you can see the progress fast, and you can finish the picture in a shorter time period. This other Abraham picture I did, I had three individuals in it. I had Abraham. He was standing up holding a rifle. There was a Seminole warrior standing right next to him, kneeling down. And there was a black water further to the right. And a lot of palmetto trees and stuff like that. But I think the next one is going to be Abraham. 
if I add somebody in there, there's only going to be one person. But I think it's going to be a real good painting, the next one of Abraham I do. Abraham's a peculiar person to paint because he had that wayward eye. It's very disconcerting to look at. Do you include it in your painting? Let's say he had a cast in his right eye, I believe it is. His right eye, yeah. I just deal with it. But I'm glad you brought that up because I see one painting of him, and that picture was in one of the magazines that uh, Tata Keith Museum sent me. And his eye wasn't crossed at all. I said, well, to me, I know the artist is trying to be. That's not Abraham as we know him because he had a cast in his eye, a right cast. The statue as well, the one in Oklahoma. Do you know that they didn't put a cast in his eye? He's not cross-eyed in that one? He's not. But as far as me, how do I deal with it? I just do it. I look at it as, as a medical thing. But, you know, that's an important question. Here's why I say that. If the average person walked up and saw that picture and didn't read nothing on Abraham, they would always say, well, man, this guy can't paint. Look at his eyes ain't right. You see what I'm saying? That's problematic for me. Yeah, that is problematic. I can have an exhibit and they say, well, what's this guy? His eyes ain't right. But they got to know about Abraham. <laughs> I got to do that. Some of the cases, I even tell them, sometimes I'll post some stuff on Facebook and I'll tell them to Google it and they'll read up on the story and they'll know. No, yeah, I got to do that. <laughs> I do the same thing with a lot of these paintings as far as the black Seminoles goes. I put a text up there. I say, well, Google John Horse, Google Billy Bullegs. That drives them to have more interest and they'll know more about it because a lot of people don't know that there were black leaders in Seminole tribe. They just don't know. History books don't tell it unless they get an outside source, unless they're a historical person. The school books are not going to tell them that. There's too much other stuff going on history-wise for them to mention that. The history books don't think it's important enough about some black rebels trying to, <laughs> try to resist the United States. No, they're not, they're not going to tell them that. Johnny, when you're choosing a subject, do you like individual portraits or big battle paintings? I like both of them, but big battle is more of a challenge. I can do either one. But big battles call for more research because they tell you at such and such a time, like when I read about Lake Okeechobee, they tell you about the uh, Tennessee volunteers and which one ran off at the initial uh, contact, which one took off and started to run. And then they'll tell you about the uh, things like the 4th Infantry or whatever. I'll identify certain infantry units that was involved, and that's what I got to know. It takes a lot of research to do big battles. No, I can't say I like one more than the other. I can say one is easier to do than the other because bigger battles take a lot more research and it takes more people you have to add into the battle. Say, say a battle like Lake Okeechobee, you might have to put like almost a dozen people in the front, like maybe six closer, and then you put some in the background and the vanishing point. You have to put little people back there. Then when you get key figures in there, you want to try to have them be identified as such in the battle. Put two people fighting, you have, the guy has to look like that particular person. Johnny, we're almost out of time. What do you want our listeners to take away from this podcast and what you share about being an artist? Well, I want them to take away the, uh, an evaluation of my work. I want them to take away whether they think uh, the subjects are worth coming to see. I want them to take away uh, some knowledge that they may not have already known about. And a lot of people don't. They did in Texas. They were fired up. They were asking questions. And I got pretty emotional. I had a couple of tears in my eyes because I'm really into this stuff. And so much had happened in those couple hundred years. And these people are still surviving. And I'm looking at survivors of descendants of people who actually fought in Florida and escaped the plantations. Their ancestors. I got emotional. And 
I got a big applause from the crowd, from the people that came. I wasn't expecting it, but I got it. I was just there to put on an exhibit because I was invited there. But they were thanking me because they said uh, they were so glad I came there and that the first exhibit they ever had like that. I was happy. Tony Montgomery, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority. Okay, good talking to you. This podcast is copyright 2023. The Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.